So we uh, come to our series where we will finish off uh, the book of Acts over the next uh, eight weeks, next two months. And it um, has a wonderful link to and follows on very nicely from Romans because we're going to see uh, a lot of what we saw in Romans. There are links which we then see actually in Acts in terms of this historical narrative uh, which we're presented with. So before I... Um, before we look at this passage further together, let me pray for God's help to understand it. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the preservation of this letter, Acts. Um, thank you for what it tells us, the insight it gives us, the window into this first century setting uh, where we see uh, the gospel spreading out into the world. Uh, and therefore, we pray that as we reflect on uh, this narrative of what happened, we would also see the principles behind it uh, as to how you work in the world and how you want to use us in the world uh, to your glory. Amen. Well, um, of course, if you remember in Romans, we've been seeing that uh, the gospel has been described in dramatic terms. Remember back, way back at the beginning, uh, Romans 1 verse 16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. It's the power of God, the dynamos. Uh, now in the book of Acts, we see the power of God at work on the ground uh, in real life drama. Uh, in Acts, we get, if you like, an embedded reporter's view of the gospel in action. And indeed, the gospel is powerful. The gospel changes and transforms lives, cities, even empires. Uh, the gospel prevails and advances in the face of hostile opposition. Now, the book of Acts uh, was written, of course, by the same author of Luke's gospel, uh, Luke. And his aim in Acts is to chart the spread of the gospel uh, from Jerusalem out into the farthest corners of the world. Um, remember, Jesus gave us the Great Commission uh, before he ascends back to heaven to his disciples. Uh, take the good news and make disciples of all nations, and I'll be with you. And then, in a sense, that provides the, the structure for the book of Acts. Uh, we see, of course, in the first seven uh, chapters of Acts, uh, the gospel in Jerusalem, the early church, which was primarily Jewish. But then a great persecution breaks out against the Jews in Jerusalem, believers. Uh, and as a result, these Jewish Christians are scattered. Uh, they flee for their lives but they take the message with them. And we see then in uh, Acts chapters 8 to 12, uh, the message going out into Judea and Samaria, into the surrounding regions. Uh, and so the gospel is going out. But, of course, then we have uh, the conversion of the apostle Paul. And he then takes up the mission to take the, the gospel to the ends of the earth, which we see primarily in chapters 13 through to the very end of the book, uh, chapter 28. <coughs> So, in Acts, uh, the term used for the gospel is the, the word, or the word of the Lord. Uh, when you read through the whole of Acts, you see it's a repeated refrain throughout the book. The word of the Lord spread. Uh, we've got one in our passage today. Uh, we'll see it later, but let's look at it now, 19 verse 20. In this way, uh, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew. So, Acts is charting, if you like, the spread of the word of the Lord, and it's unstoppable. In the book of Acts, uh, the Apostle Paul has moved to centre stage 
uh, in his conversion in chapter 9. And he is now the driving force to take the word to the ends of the earth. And since then, he has already embarked on two missionary journeys over the previous seven years. So here's a map of his first missionary journey. Uh, this is his sending church here. And in his first missionary journey via Cyprus, he then comes over and uh, comes into the interior and eventually returns to his sending church in Antioch, Syria. Uh, and that was AD 46 to 49. Uh, then he sets off on his second missionary journey in AD 50. Uh, and he comes again into Sicilia and charts through, checks in through Galatia into Asia, goes on the northerly route. Uh, doesn't spend much time in Asia really, he just treks through it, uh, but then has a very fruitful ministry here on the edges of Europe and then down into Greece. And he comes back here and just briefly calls in Ephesus and says, can't stay, but I'll come back. And then he tracks back to uh, this area here, to Jerusalem, and then back to his sending church. So, um, we, start, we start today and pick up the account in uh, chapter 18, verse 23. Uh, earlier in chapter 18, uh, Paul has just finished this second missionary journey. He's just returned to Jerusalem uh, and then uh, onto his supporter church in Antioch. And so now in chapter 18, verse 23, he embarks on his third, and as far as we know, his final missionary journey in AD 53. So verse 23 says, After spending some time in Antioch, in Syria, uh, Paul set out from there. And so his third missionary journey starts. So before we leap into the text and uh, think about uh, and look at it more closely, what are we going to see in this passage of Acts. Well, we're going to see the power of the gospel at work in different ways. Uh, the, it's the ministry of the word, and it is multifaceted. Uh, we're going to see that the word strengthens and deepens existing faith. We're going to see that the word transforms hazy understanding into a real, lively faith in Jesus. We're going to see that the word challenges and persuades people to surrender their lives to the loving rule of Christ. And we're going to see that the word exposes uh, rival truth claims for what they are. And as we see the word at work, uh, we're going to also observe different reactions to it. Uh, some embrace it, others kick back against it and shout it down. And for us today, uh, it's going to remind us of how the word can work in us and through us. And it's also going to remind us what we can expect as we reach out to others with the word, to share it with them. So let's look more closely then at this wonderful passage of scripture. Uh, so firstly, uh, the word strengthens existing faith into firmer faith. Uh, look at the, full of, uh, the whole of verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He's strengthening all the disciples. So Paul is retracing his steps from his earlier journey. Uh, he's revisiting the churches that he's previously set up on his previous two missionary journeys. Here again is the map of uh, his third journey. So he leaves Antioch, his supporter church, and here he is going through Galatia, and he's strengthening the believers here in these churches which he set up on his previous uh, missions. 
So what he's doing is, of course, he's teaching them the word. He's teaching them the gospel. It's the ministry of the word. Uh, by an amazing coincidence, uh, and from what I recall when I was doing my study for preparing for Romans, the only other place in the Bible where the word which is used here in Acts for strengthening uh, is used in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Uh, let me remind you of what we saw in chapter 16 of Romans. And now to him who is able to establish, it's the same word, establish or strengthen. Now to him is able to establish or strengthen you by my gospel, the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. As Christians study the word, uh, as they imbibe the gospel, uh, the truth that God has made known, it strengthens them, it establishes them. As Christians grow in their understanding of the word, it makes them firm, strong, and stable in their faith. Uh, in their faith against error, in their holiness against temptation, and in their courage against persecution. Uh, so, uh, that is why, of course, the ministry of the word uh, needs to remain central to all we do here at Cherrybrook Presbyterian. Because it's how God strengthens us and fortifies us in the faith. Not only does the gospel strengthen existing faith into firmer faith, it also transforms hazy understanding into a real, lively faith in the Lord Jesus. So, whilst Paul is backpacking around Galatia, many kilometres away, a Jewish man called Apollos is about to have a conversation which will change his life. Uh, he's in the Greek city of Ephesus. Now we're told that Apollos is an intelligent man. Uh, he has a great knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. He's a Jew himself. And he's teaching others about Jesus, uh, but his theology is a little bit woolly. Verse 25. He had been instructing in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour, and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. It's likely that Apollos believed Jesus to be the Messiah, but he didn't yet fully understand the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection. He only knows, we're told, about the baptism of John. And so, two Christians, Priscilla and Aquila, discreetly invite him round for some afternoon tea and they go through the gospel with him. Uh, they go through two ways to live and they explain the way more accurately. And lo and behold, Apollos is wonderfully converted and now armed with this fuller understanding uh, he becomes a powerful proponent for the kingdom. Chapter 18, verse 27. He was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, it's an interesting window into first century evangelism. Uh, it was much more than just an appeal to trust in Jesus. As we're going to see in several places today in this passage, uh, early evangelism involved debating and persuading and refuting uh, it was evidentially based, it involved, particularly to the Jews, proving from the scriptures, uh, connecting the dots, the Old Testament promises, with the New Testament eyewitness reports of fulfillment. Uh, the apostles would say, uh, we have seen this, this, and this is how it links back to what was promised. 
So as chapter 19 opens, uh, Paul then makes his way to Ephesus. And it's a very canny, strategic choice because through it, he is going to penetrate the whole province of Asia evangelistically. You see, Ephesus was the principal trading center of Asia. It had a harbor and it had a network of roads which led off into the interior. And so there, Paul gets talking when he arrives to a group of 12 people who had a woolly understanding of Jesus. Uh, Similar to Apollos, Apollos, uh, they are grounded in John the Baptist's teaching, uh, but they've not yet joined the dots in relation to Jesus. And so Paul points out the purpose of John's message, John the Baptist, verse 4. Paul said to them, uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus. And with that, uh, Paul tells them about Jesus, the one coming after John. And they themselves are now wonderfully converted. Uh, All 12 of them are immediately baptised in the name of Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. What an incredible and encouraging start. And it's an encouragement for us today. Uh, Sometimes God will use us to be the final link in the chain uh, for people who already have some understanding of Jesus, maybe a woolly understanding, but they haven't yet quite joined the dots. And God will use us now, as he did then, to sometimes call people who are in that situation, who are, in a sense, on the brink of the kingdom, through us to finally have the dots joined and to draw them into the kingdom. Remember back in 1992, um, one of my friends asked me if I'd be his best man at his wedding. I said I would be, uh, and then he told me the, the wedding was to be in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I'm not sure if he asked me because I was his best mate or because he knew I had my BA flights and I could get out there cheaply. Anyway, I was delighted to oblige, and I thought, well, I'll also uh, go and visit my uncle, uh, who also lived in Canada. Um, my uncle at that point wasn't going on with the Lord, and so I thought maybe um, God can use me to bless him uh, in his Christian journey in his faith journey. So I went uh, armed with the teeth with all these tracks in my luggage, you know, little things which explain about the Christian message. But um, during my time with him, um, it just wasn't appropriate. Um, there wasn't any point in my time in the conversations where it was appropriate to offer him any of these. So I sort of, oh, well, never mind. Uh, I then went on from him, my uncle's, to the wedding. And uh, we had the ceremony and then the reception. I was on the, the top table with the bride and the groom and the chief bridesmaid, who was um, the bride's sister. Her name was Cathy. Uh, When it came to the end of the the reception, the bride and the groom left, uh, rather eagerly, of course, as you do, uh, and left me on the top table with just the the maid of honour, Cathy. So I just sort of got chatting with her, and uh, sort of Cathy had come from a Christian home. And um, so I said to her, you know, how are you going in your Christian life? And she sort of seemed a bit woolly and not really quite having sort of... What she said didn't seem to indicate she had a clear understanding of, of the gospel. So I said to her, uh, would you like... I've, I've got something which may help you. Uh, would you like me to give you a, a tract or something? She said, yes. Well, I had a whole suitcase of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't deluge her with all of them. 
uh, but I gave her one which was appropriate uh, at the end of the reception and said, read this, see what you think. Uh, the next day I saw her and I said, what do you think? She said, I read it and now it all makes sense. I became a Christian last night. I said, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful uh, to be used by the Lord in the most unexpected way. Uh, she'd come from a Christian home and family who had faithfully um, taught the gospel to her, but so she had the background, but the pieces of the jigsaw hadn't quite fitted together. And I had the privilege of being used by the Lord to be the last link in the chain. The one who, based on all the hard work and loving care and support and instruction the parents had given her, uh, I was the one who just finally helped her to join the dots. So be encouraged. Uh, sometimes uh, the Lord will bring people like that across our paths. Uh, be ready for them. Uh, maybe have in your wallet uh, a little tract which you could give somebody uh, if the opportunity presents itself. Because you never know how the Lord will use us. So, uh, back to Acts. As chapter 19 opens, <clears throat> Paul makes his way to, to Ephesus, uh, as we've seen. And um, we've seen what happens there. He initially uh, has this conversation with these 12 people, and uh, they, they are wonderfully converted. Uh, thereafter, Paul starts his mission to evangelize the city of Ephesus in earnest. His strategy was to first give first refusal to the Jews in any city which he visited with the gospel. Uh, here again, uh, the gospel he presents to them is not merely a blind appeal for a commitment to Christ. It involves argument and persuasion. Look at verse 8 of chapter 19. Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Uh, as did Apollos, uh, Paul proves from their own scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, yet, unlike with Apollos and the twelve, the synagogue Jews reject and disparage the message. Verse 9. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. It's interesting that when the gospel is preached, uh, people cannot remain neutral. When the gospel is preached, people respond to it in one of two ways. Uh, they either, it either softens their heart or it hardens their heart against the message. But there is no sitting on the fence. In this case, sadly, uh, these Jews hardened their heart against the preaching of the word. Unlike with the case of Apollos and the Twelve, who softened their hearts. And now in the face of Jewish rejection, uh, Paul follows his usual protocol. He leaves the Jews and he goes to the Gentiles next door. He withdraws from the synagogue and he sets up shop in a local hall, offering daily lectures and debates to the public. Uh, verse 9 continues. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So there he is. Uh, he's debating with people. Anyone who will listen, come and discuss with me your worldview and let's compare it to the worldview of the message of Jesus, the gospel. Uh, discussing 
uh, with people and engaging them in their worldview and discussing it and comparing it to the gospel's worldview is a wonderful way of sharing the good news with them and engaging with people. Uh, when I was in my church in London, that's probably mid-1990s, uh, one guy I knew called Steve, uh, he was very passionate about his faith and he had a real heart to share it with his work colleagues. So he came up to me today and um, at the time I was uh, doing a Bible teaching course and he said to me, I want to invite my, my work colleagues uh, to a meal at my house uh, with a, a clear agenda. I'm going to tell them, look, come around for a meal, but let's also uh, just discuss uh, the Christian message. Uh, you know, no holds barred, come around and we'll talk about it. I'll have a guy there who will give a short talk uh, from a Bible passage and then we can open it up. Uh, so he said to me, would you be willing to give the talk? Oh, okay, thanks. So I said yes, and uh, I mean, he was quite apprehensive about what it would be like, um, and I was a bit apprehensive as well. How will it go? Anyway, um, the evening occurred, and his friends came around, his work colleagues, and I, I spoke actually from a passage in Acts, uh, and then we opened it up, and we had a rip-roaring discussion. Uh, and even they, at the end, said, we were all a bit apprehensive when we came, but actually, that was really, really good, just to have an open discussion, to hear what you, the Bible says, and also to share from our point of view. So there we have it. Um, it takes you know, a bit of energy uh, and courage to overcome our reservations, but it is worth thinking about. Uh, who could I maybe invite into that sort of setting where I could have uh, a discussion with people openly, with a clear agenda? We're not going to uh, uh, ambush them, invite them around on false pretenses, but just say, look, uh, why don't we get together and talk about the gospel? So, uh, Paul's discussion groups, uh, his discussion groups proved to be very effective, incredibly effective. Uh, look at verse 10. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What? He's there in Ephesus, in a hall, for two years, leading discussion groups, and yet he can say that all the Jews and the Greeks in the whole of the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What does he mean? Well, uh, this city was at a very central place. Uh, it had a large influx of visitors. And it appears that a, a substantial number of these visitors to the city would have attended Paul's discussions and themselves come to faith. And they, of course, then in time... Uh, return to their villages and their towns throughout Asia, and as they go, they take the message with them. And so, this is undoubtedly the way that all those in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And Paul's message was not just persuasive. Uh, it was underwritten with, God's, uh, with acts of God's power. Uh, this was God's way of authenticating the apostles in their unique role of establishing the early church. In effect, uh, he would enable them to do miraculous things because the message was from God, these are my men and this is my message. Listen to them. Uh, we saw this in Romans 15. Uh, there Paul describes his ministry in terms of, and I quote again, Romans 15 verse 18, uh, leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. 
by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. And now, in Acts, we see the power signs in play on the ground. Look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So you see, that the message about Christ was underwritten with the power of Christ, the power of Christ over disease and demon possession. And sure enough, uh, Paul's power displays drew many to genuine saving faith in Christ. And yet, Paul's power displays also drew some charlatans to seek the power of Christ without the person of Christ. Uh, some local exorcists decide that the name of Jesus would be a useful addition to their portfolio of incantation of power names. But they're in for a bit of a shock. Verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Uh, without a personal relationship with Christ, the command of these exorcists of deliverance was impotent, and their safety endangered. And galvanized by superhuman strength, the demon-possessed man pounces on them and nearly rips them limb from limb. Jesus was not about to allow his name to be reduced to a magical formula. And as is common about people's and news of people's mis misfortune, it travels fast. And this news travels fast. And the ripples spread throughout the city, and it has a positive impact on everyone in the city. There is now a newfound reverence for the name of Jesus. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. And this healthy respect for Christ moves some Christians to a more wholehearted commitment to Christ. Uh, some Christians now see the power and majesty of their Lord with clearer vision, and it moves them to humble confession and to radical action. Verse 18. Many of those who believed, so they are Christians, now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their skulls together and burnt them publicly. Now, do you see what they're doing? Now, they're believers, but they are now making a decisive break with their pre-Christian past. Now, they are repenting more wholeheartedly, uh, more deeply, and their repentance is costly. Verse 19 continues. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma was a silver coin uh, worth about a day's wages. These scrolls which were burnt were worth 50,000 Days wages. How amazing is that? What an incredible amount of money for it to be just go up and smoke. And yet these believers, as an act of their commitment to Christ, are saying, we're not going to sell them on eBay. 
They're not going to corrupt others. We're going to get rid of them once and for all. It is an incredible insight of the power of the word on the lives and hearts of believers. Where they go deeper, they, they realize, I want to live more wholeheartedly for Christ. I want to turn my back and draw a line on the past. And the challenge is still the same for Christians today. There are other aspects of our past life which we need to draw a more firm line under and say, this is now in the past and it's no longer going to live in the present. I'm going to be radical. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to make sure that I don't in any way return to that aspect of my former life which is now dishonouring to Christ and his lordship over me. So, as the magic scrolls lie in ashes, the living, life-giving word continues to spread. Look at verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And as the curtain starts to close on Paul's time in Ephesus, we are given a glimpse of his plans beyond. As we saw in Romans chapter 15, uh, Paul intends to return to Jerusalem, but eventually he's hoping to visit the Roman church in Rome. And we see this here in Acts, verse 21. After all this had happened, uh, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, uh, passing through Macedonia and Acacia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, where, while he stayed in the province of Asia, a little longer. And now, whilst he lingers a little longer in Asia, uh, there is a violent backlash against the gospel in Ephesus. Uh, indeed, it is the last recorded episode of Gentile mission in the book of Acts. As the boundaries of God's kingdom are extended, so the strongholds of paganism are threatened. And consequently, uh, feathers are ruffled. Uh, the influence of the gospel is so powerful and widespread that it causes the sales figures for pagan temple merchandise to drop. Uh, the craftsmen who are part of the local temple merchandise industry, uh, they are not happy. Uh, they are losing cash money. And hence an outcry against the Christians called The Way is orchestrated by the local master of the silver workers' guild, Demetrius. Uh, he convenes a meeting with his fellow craftsmen Verse 25, and he says this. Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. It's interesting, isn't it? That to Demetrius' mind, the gospel has led people astray. That to a world in rebellion... Uh, the proclamation of gospel truth will often be recast as an excursion into error. Uh, the affluent lifestyle of these craftsmen is jeopardised by Paul's uh, preaching. Uh, he's saying, don't follow these false gods, they're just man-made. They're just worthless idols. And of course, his preaching is impacting this idol industry. And of course, Demetrius and his colleagues don't just want to be as so base as to say it's just about money. And so they dress it up, adding more respectable motives of religious zeal and respect for religion and local patriotism. Look at verse 27. 
Uh, there is a danger, he continued, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great god Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. It's interesting, isn't it? The gospel is often attacked by those who feel their worldview and their truth is being threatened. And often the gospel will be misrepresented as being error. Uh, reasons for them supporting and maintaining their own position are often dressed up in ways which seem very respectable. And yet, at the end of the day, the bottom line is they feel threatened by the gospel. And they will do anything to kick back against it and to fight it. And often we see, of course, the response is, therefore, very aggressive. Sometimes bemusingly aggressive. And that is what we see here in Ephesus. Now the craftsmen become the core of a mob that rushes violently into the local theatre. It would have been a huge theatre. Probably it could seat 24,000 people. By this point, they have... Uh, caused the whole city to be in uproar, and they have laid hold of two of Paul's travelling companions. And in furious defiance, uh, they bellow this cultic chant of adoration. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And that's all they do. They just keep chanting it, uh, working themselves up into a frenzy. Uh, there is no interest in rational debate, uh, in discussing. They just resort to this mindless shouting down of the gospel. And only the timely and wisely intervention of the city clerk eventually quells the mob and restores order. Today, uh, the gospel still faces these challenges as it opposes false truth claims. And to the calm and clear proclamation of the gospel, people do still react in anger, uh, in attack, sometimes just by shouting it down or by misrepresenting it. And we see this in our media don't we? Sometimes uh, almost a bemusing level of aggression and hostility towards the Christian faith. It's not as if, yes, let's have a rational debate. Uh, you can express your views in the public space and we can express ours. No, they say, you've got no right to express your views. Be silent. And we've seen that in many discussions in the public domain, haven't we? But let me close with a, an interesting story of this uh, from Charles, Col um, Charles Colson. Uh, he, of course, was the special counsel to President Nixon from 1969 to 73. Uh, he was uh, arising out of the Watergate scandal, uh, convicted in prison for obstructing justice, uh, and that was the crisis point in his life when actually he came to faith in Christ. Uh, he became wonderfully converted and became a great proponent for the gospel. He started up a ministry, um, a Christian ministry in prisons, but also... Uh, was a great apologist. He would speak at many different functions uh, to engage with people and to say, uh, challenge their worldviews and present the gospel's uh, world of view. Uh, he recounts one occasion when uh, he had been invited by David Frost onto um, the Variety program, as it was, uh, on the NBC channel. And he was to, um, been invited to debate the topic of Christianity with an ardent American atheist, uh, she was very famous, uh, also a very vociferous and vocal atheist. Uh, her name was Madeline Murray O'Hare. Uh, so, uh, they go on the, on the show, uh, they have a discussion. Uh, 
Carlson recounts, uh, and I'll, I'll read it to you, of what happened. He says this, I was aware that she knew the subject well, in terms of Christianity, uh, because she graduated from an evangelical college, and she had a close knowledge of the scriptures. So I decided it would be good to, a good idea to take my Bible with me. It proved handy when Mrs. O'Hare claimed that the Bible is a brutal, horrible book. I held up my Bible and asked her to read to us the passages she was talking about. She backed away as if I held a weapon. All that she would say was, it's full of hate and murder, even though her, refu even though her refusal to defend her views clearly cost her the sympathy of Frost and the audience. After the debate, I approached Mrs. O'Hare to tell her that I, like many other Christians, were praying that she would find the truth. She retorted with great aggression, well, I don't pray, but if I did pray, I'd pray that you will lose. You will lose, Mr. Carson. Mr. Colson, you will fail. I was bemused. I tried to be kind to her, and yet she couldn't be kind back. All she could be was just vociferously hostile. He concludes, the whole experience left me with the impression of an angry, bitter woman. But I found it interesting that she couldn't just leave me alone to what she thought was my superstition, or even laugh my views off. My conclusion was that Mrs. O'Hare couldn't leave me alone because she really did know the truth and had turned her back on it. The gospel is the power of God. It's the truth of God. And it threatens people when they oppose and hold opposing truth views. But it's powerful, and it will continue to do its work. And may it continue to do its work in us and through us to God's glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we pray uh, that you would continue to use us. And may the word uh, and the ministry of the word be powerful in our hearts and lives as a congregation together, strengthening us, fortifying us. Uh, may it also be something which we can effectively hold out to others, um, engaging people in discussion, uh, even though that can often sometimes be comfortable. And may we be ready to be used by you in the lives of people who you bring across our path. So please we pray, and may your gospel work continue to flourish in this land and beyond, to your glory. Amen.